Would you all please stand for the reading of God's word? Today we'll be reading out of the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Pastor Bruce is continuing in his series on the Beatitudes, specifically on this passage of resisting revenge. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 553. Um, Follow along as I read. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from whom and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to hear your word and hear a message, God. I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you continue to um, and, uh, and dwell in us and uh, teach us from your Holy Spirit, God. In your name, amen. Revenge. Revenge nowadays is one of the more popular themes in movies. Whether it's the classic Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan, to the Count of Monte Cristo, to the Western of True Grit, to the recent movie The Revenant, or two of my all-time favorites, Gladiator and Braveheart. People love, in particular, these last two movies because the The central character in each of these movies is rather easy to cheer for. We we identify with Maximus and uh, William Wallace because we want them. We're we're cheering for them to accomplish the goal that they set out to obtain. You're like, well, what's that goal? Well, on one hand, they each have a political goal, but let's face it, that's simply the context in which they achieve their personal goal of revenge which Maximus sums up in his speech before Emperor Claudius, describing himself as a father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And so in both movies, you have the hero's wife and family. They have been killed, and now they're out to avenge their deaths, and someone needs to suffer for what they've done. And we, we as an audience, well, we sit on the edge of our seats watching the suspense unfold before our eyes. And we naturally, we, we cheer. We want to see the bad guy get what's coming to him. We look forward to even that final confrontation where the hero finally confronts his enemy. And the hero says, if my, I might use an example from another movie, The Princess Bride. You're familiar with that one. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. So although we, let's admit it, in our flesh, we like to, we celebrate the vengeance in the movies we watch. Jesus comes before us now. In the Sermon on the Mount that we have been looking at for the last few weeks, and he leads us to a very different conclusion. He has a very different take on how we should respond to those who have wronged us. Jesus, so far here in Matthew chapter 5, as we've been seeing in these last few verses, has been 
redefining our understanding of the Old Testament law by spelling out for us what exactly this exceeding righteousness or this surpassing righteousness really looks like for those of us who claim to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Not only, as as we have seen, is murder wrong, but Jesus says, so is anger in your heart. Not only is adultery a sin, but Jesus says, so is lust in the heart. Giving your spouse a certificate of divorce for any reason, Jesus says, does not make it okay. But rather, he points us to the original design in God's creation of marriage. He holds it up as our example and says, listen, be faithful to your spouse. Make that a lifetime goal. He also then says, taking an oath shouldn't be an excuse to lie at other times. Rather, we are to be truthful in everything that we say. And now we come to another example where Jesus shows us what this exceeding righteousness, this surpassing righteousness looks like when you are personally wrong. In other words, how should you and I, how should we respond when someone either hates you, hurts you, or humiliates you. Well, here's Jesus' answer summarized. When King Jesus rules our lives, he says, as Christ's followers, we will resist seeking revenge. We will resist seeking revenge against those who hate us, against those who hurt us, or even humiliate us. Now, let's be honest again here. Uh, there are few commands in the Bible that clash more with our natural inclination to protect ourselves and to protect our rights than what Jesus says right here in Matthew 5. Turn the other cheek. We would rather clench our fists. Retaliation is not only considered the norm in our culture, but indispensable to our very survival. One commentator writes, Nowhere is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount greater than in these verses. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian counter culture more obvious. And nowhere is the need of the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. At the same time, probably no part of the Sermon on the Mount has been so misinterpreted and so misapplied as this section right here in Matthew chapter 5. These verses have been misinterpreted to mean that Christians are simply to be pious doormats when physically attacked. These verses have also been misapplied to promote passism objection to military service and law enforcement and a host of other positions that it does not support. In fact, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, he actually based one of his best-known novels, War and Peace, on these verses here in the Sermon on the Mount. Tolstoy, who consequently had a major influence on Gandhi, believed that no Christian should be involved in the army, the police force, or the courts of law. Christ's way, he argued, is not to resist evil in any way. And for this reason, our challenge here this morning is not just to hear what Jesus says, but to also understand what Jesus really means in these verses when it comes to resisting 
revenge in a very vengeful world. Now, let's unpack what Jesus has to say here again, as we have done for several weeks now. And really, each of these sections falls into two major points, as you have seen or noticed over the last few weeks, and today is no different. And you'll notice the first point here is that God taught equal justice for the nation of Israel. God taught equal justice for the nation of Israel. Notice again what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. We're looking at verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that phrase there is actually an exact quotation from three different Old Testament passages. And it represents one of the oldest, if not the oldest law in the world. It's, and that law is known as the law of retaliation. Now, on the surface, when you hear that phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, on the surface, that law of retaliation, it may seem to our ears here, well, that seems cruel. That actually seems savage. And it may even conjure up images of the gruesome maiming and grim executioners. However, when you dig below the surface of what you're hearing, this law of retaliation was a great leap forward in civilization. It was actually a call for equal justice. In fact, this law did two things. Let me show it to you. Notice here in your notes. The law of retaliation, first of all, it prohibited excessive punishment for a crime that was committed. The purpose of this law was to limit punishment for a crime by actually setting restrictions. As it says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But as we know, retaliation, revenge, always sets out to get more than that. We want two eyes for an eye. If someone hits you and knocks out your tooth, we want them to lose all of their teeth. If someone cuts off your ear, we want them to lose their head. But that's barbaric. Whereas the law of retaliation says that the punishment must fit the crime. That's justice. And so when Moses gave the Israelites this law, he was helping a ragtag group of people become a nation, become a civilized society. And so this law, in particular, was given to the judges of Israel, and it gave the judges a very clear and just formula in punishment. Far from being a savage law, this law was actually a very merciful law because it ensured that criminals were treated justly. At the same time, this law also protected society by curtailing further crime. When a person is punished for his wrongdoing, Deuteronomy 19.20 tells us that, that the rest, that is the rest of the people, the nation of Israel, when they hear and see what's being done in the punishment of these criminals, it says this, the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. And so, first of all, this law of retaliation here, it prohibited excessive punishment for a crime. But it also did another thing. It had a second purpose, and that is it prevented personal vengeance for a crime committed against you. This law was for the civil courts 
to enforce, not for individuals. In other words, what this law said is, you were not allowed to take the law into your own hands. It forbade, in other words, angry retaliation and personal vengeance. It restrained men like Lamech. Remember that name in our series in Genesis last year? You go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, and here's a man, a very wicked and evil man, who boasts. He even makes a little ditty of a song. He says, I have killed a man for simply wounding me. That was barbaric. And so what this law did in the Old Testament times for the nation of Israel, it actually reigned in the vindictiveness that reigns in the human heart that wants a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. Now, the reason this law is so important, even in our societies today, is because it points out something about our own sinfulness. That is rather true of everyone here this morning. And that is revenge always escalates. Let's face it. If someone hurts us, our natural response is to hurt them back. But to do so worse. Just walk into any preschool and you will see this response play out when one kid gets called poopy pants, and the other kid gets called stupid poopy pants, and before you know it, the other kid is throwing his poopy pants at the other kid for calling him stupid poopy pants, and again, let's be honest here, most of our world hasn't moved much beyond preschool when it comes to relationships and responding to personal offenses. Here's the problem with human vengeance. It is never satisfied with justice. Never satisfied with justice. Vengeance always wants more than just even. This is one reason why God restricts vengeance to himself in Deuteronomy 32:35, where God says, vengeance is mine and retribution. We don't have the right to say, according to Proverbs 24, 29, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. And yet that is exactly what the Pharisees were doing and also teaching. They were taking the law into their own hands and applying it personally to their relationships. Here's what Jewish tradition taught. Here's what the scribes and Pharisees taught. The Pharisees twisted God's law to justify personal revenge. What God gave in the Old Testament as a restriction on Israel's civil courts, the Pharisees had now turned into a personal license for revenge. In other words, the Pharisees, if you can think of it this way, they were dragging the law from the civil courts where God said it belongs, and they were using it to justify revenge in their personal relationships where God said it does not belong. Once again, 
What we see here in this example is that the self-righteous Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were making a shambles of God's holy law that was actually given for the very benefit of God's people. But Jesus does not let this kind of thinking just slide. He confronts the Pharisees' self-righteousness, and he corrects their twisting of God's law by teaching us the very spirit of the law, which brings us to our second point. Notice this. Jesus taught radical resistance for kingdom citizens. Jesus taught radical resistance for kingdom citizens. Look what he says again. And let's start back in verse 38. Look, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, we need to stop here. And we need to understand what Jesus is really saying with these words. What is he teaching and what is he not teaching? Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Jesus is teaching non-retaliation in our personal relationships. Jesus is not teaching that we should, that we should not take a stand against evil. And it's very important that we understand the distinction there. This phrase that Jesus uses, do not resist is simply a general principle for personal relationships. It is not an absolute requirement when it comes to evil. How do you know that? Because we know elsewhere in the Bible that it teaches us that we should resist evil. In fact, Jesus and the apostles continually opposed evil with every means and resource that they had to them. Jesus himself resisted the defiling of God's temple by making a whip and driving out the money changers in Matthew 21, 12. Paul, the apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, when he is proclaiming the gospel there, he resisted Simon Magnus when he interfered with him proclaiming the gospel in Acts 13. James and Peter both tell us, and they command Christians to resist the devil. Paul makes it clear even that the government is a divine institution that has a responsibility to restrain evil and to punish wrongdoers in society, according to Romans 13. And so, not to restrain evil is neither just nor kind. It fails to protect the innocent, and it even has the negative effect of encouraging the wicked in their evil ways. This word resist, it it means, it's the idea here, to set against or oppose. And in the context in which Jesus is using it, which is the context of personal relationships, it means for us here this morning, do not render evil for evil. In other words, no tit for tat. That's the idea. Jesus is talking about revenge in our relationships, not self-preservation. 
He isn't telling us to be passive and weak. He's telling us not to be vindictive in our relationships. In fact, it's the very same truth that Paul taught in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 19, where Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. And then later in the verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and now he quotes the verse in the New Old Testament, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In summary, what Jesus is telling us here is that vengeful retaliation has no place in society. And even less place among those who belong to Jesus Christ. Those of us who, because of our faith in Christ, are now citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's not telling parents not to discipline their children. He isn't telling governments to shut down. He isn't implying that we should abolish the police force, disband the military, and demolish all prisons. So what is Jesus saying? He's simply teaching what God has already said in the Old Testament. In fact, you can see it for yourself in Leviticus 19.18, where God says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. This, in other words, this is the very heart of God's law. This is the heart of what Jesus is saying to us when we've been wrong. When someone hates you. When someone hurts you. Or when someone humiliates you. Jesus is saying, don't make your, quote, rights the basis of your relationships with others. That's the heart of it. Instead, Jesus wants us to ask another question, a different question, and that is, if someone does something evil to me, how may I respond with good in return? Jesus doesn't leave us guessing as to the answer to that question. He actually lays it out for us. Notice what he says. He gives us four illustrations in verses 39 through 42. He says, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. In each of these little cameos, they're drawn from different life situations from Jesus' day. Each of them introduces an evil person who seeks to violate our rights or do some kind of harm to us. And they all, all of them have a very modern ring to them, except for maybe the third one, which sounds a little bit archaic. In each of the four situations, Jesus spells out very specifically that our Christian duty as Christ followers is not just to refrain from revenge, but he takes it a step further. He says we are actually to even do good 
to those who do evil to us. Which is so opposite of what our culture says today. So, let's briefly look at these four illustrations of resisting of revenge. Notice the first one. If someone attacks your dignity, turn the other cheek. Again, Jesus says in verse 39, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, what is Jesus describing here? Well, he doesn't have in mind someone coming up to you on the street and physically popping you one on the face and you saying, oh, here, hit this side too. Contrary to what we might think, Jesus is not describing a physical attack here, but rather a calculated insult. Notice that Jesus specifically mentions the right cheek, which tells us that he is describing a backhanded slap since most people are right-handed. You see, in Jesus' day, in that culture, a backhanded slap was an insult of massive proportions that we don't fully understand in our culture. It was an attack, in other words, on one's dignity and on their honor. In fact, according to rabbinic law, to hit someone with the back of your hand was twice as insulting as hitting him with the palm of your hand. The back of the hand was a sign of contempt. And it meant to that person, you are the scum of the earth. If a man slapped you with the back of his hand, instead of punching you in the mouth, you could actually take him to court and collect twice the damages because an insult was worse than an injury in Jesus' honor-shame society. Now, what this means for us is that when we are insulted, and in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, All of these have the context, when you go back to the Beatitudes, of actually being persecuted for our faith. In other words, we're being insulted, we're being injured, we're being harmed, we're being hated, hurt, and humiliated, not because we're acting like jerks, but because we're living for Christ. And so what's happening here, what this means for us, is that we must not respond by getting even. In other words, we, as Christ followers, we do not seek revenge. Instead, we, in a sense, we turn the other cheek. We think, because it's the culture in which we live today, we think we must always protect our dignity and defend our reputation. Someone attacks that, man, I'm standing up for it. You ain't getting away with that. But what did Jesus do? Jesus did just the opposite. Listen to how Jesus responded in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. It says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, listen, let the insults come. 
and show the world by your response that you feel no need for retaliation. Why? Because you have your reputation secure with God as his child. So the question becomes for us now, are you willing to leave the vindication of your reputation in God's hands? Or are you more prone to take it out of his hands and enact it yourself? Defend it yourself. Protect it yourself. Who do you think can do a better job of vindicating your reputation? You or the Lord? Because that's what it comes down to. If someone attacks your dignity, turn the other cheek. The second cameo we have here is if someone threatens your security, let him have your cloak. Look what Jesus says again in verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Jesus' day, much like our day, was a litigation-happy society where people, took, where people went to court for retaliation. In fact, people going to court... In Jesus' day, much like in our day, represents this deep desire to get what you think you deserve. Or to get even. Or, really, to get more. And so what happens is, even in our day, just as it was in Jesus' day, we sue each other's pants off. Or, in this case, literally, the shirt off your back. In Jesus' day, people normally wore what was called an inner garment called a tunic and then an outer garment called a cloak or robe. So you have to understand they only wore two pieces of clothing. They didn't wear underwear. They didn't wear underclothing. The tunic was the underclothing. The cloak was the outer garment. And it was possible in that day to sue someone for the very shirt on their back. However, no one could take another person's cloak. Why? Because the cloak, the outer garment, was your covering, and it was used as a blanket at night. And so even if you lost the shirt or your tunic in court, and your opponent asked the judge for your cloak, and he actually won it, he, get this, by law, had to return the cloak, the outer garment, to you every night for you to sleep in. That was the law. So what was the situation here? What's going on? Well, evidently, again, Jesus is giving advice to his followers who have been reduced now to their garments on their backs because of persecution of their faith. His teaching is simply this. If someone threatens your security by suing you for your shirt, give him your cloak too, even though they cannot take it legally. Now, i got to admit, this is radical. This is supremely radical. And yet, we must recognize the hyperbole being used here. Jesus is not advocating nudity here. He's making a point. Jesus is not commanding us to give away everything until we are left cold and naked standing outside. Rather, he is commanding us, and here's the general principle. Hear this. 
He's commanding us not, not, not to devote ourselves to clearing our names, to defending false accusations and avenging all wrongs done to us in a court of law because of our faith in Christ. We should also note that Jesus is not referring to the average lawsuit in our society. Listen, wrongly applied. This would do away with the need for the court system. This would even do away with legal representation in certain situations. Rather, it is advice for Christ followers who are being pushed against the wall for the name of Christ. Francis Schaeffer captures Jesus' point well when he writes, and I quote, I have felt very much and increasingly that it is a deep spiritual principle that Christians should not vindicate themselves. We now come to the third cameo. The third illustration where Jesus says, if someone infringes on your liberty, go the second mile or go the extra mile. Look what he says in verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Again, you have to understand each of these cameos in the context of Jesus' culture. And in Jesus' day, Roman soldiers, who were the ones in charge over the Jewish people, Roman soldiers had the authority to stop any civilian and force them to carry their pack. However, Roman law said that a person only had to do this service for one mile. And then he was free to go. Well, obviously, most people held to the letter of the law in this particular case, they measured the mile in steps, 1,000 exactly. And let me tell you, if I was them, I would do the same thing. You counted every step. And when they got to 1,000 steps, they stopped, they put down the pack, and they left the Roman soldier to carry his own load or find another victim. And almost all Jews have been subjected to this. Why? They were the ones being oppressed. And they hated the very mention of this law. And so what an infringement on one's liberty to be forced, think of it this way, to help a foreign oppressor carry the tools that he uses to oppress you. And we can easily see how open to abuse this was. Because you don't have authority. You're not in power. The Roman soldier is. Oftentimes, this sort of persecution fell upon believers because of their identification with Christ. And some think that may be why Simon of Cyrene was made to carry Christ's cross when Jesus was physically too weak to do so in Matthew 27. So what, then, let's apply it to our lives today in context here. What does Jesus say when you find yourself in such a situation? The principle is this. Don't just do what's required. Go the extra mile. Do more than what was asked of you. Jesus says, when you're drafted and have walked one mile, keep going and carry the load two miles. In other words, don't fume and don't rage that those in power have subjected you and stepped on your liberty and think that for them to ask you to do something so menial is too humiliating. 
What about at work? What about at work when your boss, who's on a power trip, asks you to do something that's way beneath you and technically is not even in your job description? What do you do? Jesus says, do it cheerfully. And then ask, is there anything else I can do to help you? Jesus says, demonstrate a servant's heart and go beyond what is demanded or expected of you. The fourth cameo or illustration is this. If someone asks for your property, give to the one who asks. Look again what Jesus says in verse 42. He says, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you and do not turn away. And my first thought is, Jesus, are you kidding me? If all of Jesus' followers did this, they would be quickly, utterly broke and destitute. So, Jesus, my question in my mind is, and maybe it's your question too, does this mean every time you see a panhandler with a cardboard sign at a streetlight, does that mean you have to give them money? Does this mean you have to loan money to irresponsible people again and again and again, even though you know they will not make an effort to pay you back? I don't think so. Why? This is not a prescription for a financial system within a society. Giving to everyone who wants to borrow money, let me tell you, that is a formula for economic disaster. This is not even the best way to deal with large-scale poverty in a society. As one commentator writes, there is no love in giving so much to someone that we foster dependency. We do not love a person by teaching him or her to abuse our generosity. So what then does Jesus mean with these words? He simply means this. Be generous with what you have. And help those who are in need. Jesus isn't, Jesus is saying, don't be stingy in giving and don't be so worried because here's where we live in our society. In other words, don't be stingy. And the reason we are is because we're so worried about protecting ourselves and protecting our property, our assets. And Jesus is saying, Don't be stingy about that. Don't worry about not being taken advantage of that you now don't help anybody in need. The law of Moses actually commanded the Israelites to lend generously without interest to their fellow brothers in need, according to Deuteronomy 15. We come to the New Testament. You go to 1 John, and the Apostle John there tells us in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And John's logic through the whole book is it doesn't. You see, what Jesus is doing here, he's confronting the stinginess in my heart. He's confronting the stinginess that dwells so deep in all of our hearts. And he wants us to reject a tight-fisted attitude that says, 
This is mine, and I will never share it. The law of retaliation, which says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Let me tell you, that is a good law for society. But not for our personal relationships. The heart that dwells on retaliation and so-called fairness makes much of one's rights. But what Jesus is saying to us here, more than anything else, is that His followers have no rights. As Christ followers, we don't have the right now to retaliate. We don't have the right to seek revenge against those who hate us or hurt us or even humiliate us. And again, this is supremely radical. Jesus is calling us to a way of life that runs contrary not only to our culture, but to our very natures. You might be wondering about now, man, how is this even possible to live out then? How is this even possible? Because the standard that Jesus is setting seems impossibly high. Notice this in your notes. Resisting revenge in relationships is only possible by dying to self. Only then will personal sacrifice replace personal retaliation. To fight for one's rights is to prove that self is still on the throne of the heart. For it is impossible to live for self and for Christ at the same time. And that is why, listen, church, we, each of us here, we must come to the point in our lives where we identify with Jesus Christ so much so that we are willing to say with the Apostle Paul what he said in Galatians 2.20, I... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is how it's possible. Through Jesus Christ and his power of the cross and by us dying to self and by faith living in Christ and Him alone. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is the life of kingdom citizens here on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us still desire to stand on our own rights at the expense of others. And it has caused us to retaliate and seek revenge when we are wrong. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need your grace to free us from it and to make us a loving people who have died to self so that we may live for Christ. And so, Lord, let us come to the cross. Let us seek your forgiveness. Let us seek your power and your grace in Jesus Christ even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The instrumentals are going to play a chorus as they do. Will you respond as God is leading you?